Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to this presentation hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies located at Durham University in Durham, England, a Center for Catholic Theology in the Public Academy. For more information, please visit our website at centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following paper was presented at a conference entitled 450 Years Pioneering Catholic Education, Past, Present, Future. It was the 450th anniversary conference for the founding of the English College at Dowie, organized by the Center for Catholic Studies of Durham University, Ushaw College, and St. Cuthbert Society of Ushaw, held at Ushaw College in Durham from the 30th of April to the 1st of May, 2018. The speaker's name is Professor Gerard Kilroy of Jesuit University Ignatianum in Krakow, and his paper is entitled Dowie to Dover, Edmund Campion, Dr. Allen, and the Secular State. Well, it's a very um, great privilege to be here and uh, meet so many old friends. Uh, and um, I'm going to try and Dr. Allen in the context of Camden's own experience, but then I'm going to try and look at the wider picture of all the other marshes, uh, and particularly in the light of Michael Christie's new book, which is uh, still unpublished, uh, which looks at the history of the canonization, and uh, so it draws uh, very much on that, and also the light of uh, my experience of Poland uh, recently. Um, I should say, probably, that uh, at the moment I'm editing, co-editing Evelyn War's Life of Edward Campion, uh, and that itself has thrown up some very interesting slugs on this. I call the talk from Dowie to by Edmund Campion and Dr. Allen on the secular state. Edmund Campion landed at Dover in the early morning of the 25th of June, 1580, flung himself on the sand and prayed. It was the first time he had touched English soil since early June, 1571, when he left England, according to Parsons, for good and all. He had reached Dr. Allen's College at Dewey by the end of June, was studying Thomas Aquinas by the 13th of August, and alongside a host of Oxford friends and contemporaries, including Richard Bristow, Thomas Ford, and Gregory Martin, spent nearly two years studying scholastic theology. Dr. Allen not only wholeheartedly endorsed the papal bull Ringham's in Excelsis, but went beyond this, and throughout the 1570s and early 1580s, as Dye has shown, was a key figure in a succession of plans for a Spanish invasion of England. Dr. Allen planned for the overthrow of the so-called Queen, Pytensa Regina, a policy that Allen outlined in a joint letter to Cardinal Moroni as early as the 10th of August, 1572, asking the new Pope, Gregory XIII, to implement the bull. Campion frequently voiced his discomfort with the bull, and by February 1573, he had taken to the road, dressed as a beggar, to make a thousand-mile solitary pilgrimage to Rome. He must have thought that he had left Dr. Allen's English mission for good and all. When Campion finally reached Rome around Easter 1573, he prayed for guidance at all the shrines, turned down an offer of preferment in the church from Cardinal Alfonso Gesualdi, 
and decided to join the Society of Jesus, which already had missions in India, Japan, and Brazil, as well as Austria, Bohemia, and Bavaria, but significantly, no mission to England. As we celebrate the 450th anniversary of Douay and applaud Dr. Allen's achievements, we must acknowledge that his policies even then had their critics, and one who made his views known by deeds rather than words, leaving his closest Oxford contemporaries, was the Elizabethan martyr par excellence. As Michael Questier succinctly put it in Catholicism and Community, almost from its inception, the Catholic mission created controversies even within the community. In his latest book, Death and Transfiguration, he spells out the implications of this by saying that while neither Alan nor Parsons ever believed in violence alone as a method of solving their problems, it could be solved for them only in a token enterprise integrating a missionary action with a political action which must imply and would be likely to involve violence. Campion left Dewey one year before the first priests were sent to England. He would surely have been among them had he stayed. After seven happy years in the Bohemian province, he received the summons to Rome from his superior general, Everard Mercurian. Although Mercurian did not specify the missionary destination, Campion must have known who was behind the summons and where he was being asked to go, even before he read Dr. Allen's letter, which almost certainly came in the same package. Make all haste and come, my dearest, as quickly as you can, so that you may reach me in the city of Rome. Campion, perhaps feeling a bit like Jonas, did anything but make haste. The letters of Mercurian and Allen, dated the 4th and 5th of December, had almost certainly arrived by mid-January 1580, and Campion, we now know, did not leave before the 23rd of February, lingered a couple of weeks in Munich to preach on the feast of Thomas Aquinas, and arrived in Rome on the 10th of April, four months after the summons had been sent, taking seven weeks to cover 800 miles, even though he had the help of ducal carriages and post horses. As Johannes Schmidl, the Bohemian historian, put it, he lingered for a little while. On reaching Rome, because of what Parsons called his hearty aversion from meddling, he asked to be excused from being superior of the mission, raised with the general Mercurian his concerns over the effects of the papal bull in England, and was granted an audience with the Pope and his Secretary of State, the Cardinal of Como, to discuss these reservations. After all these attempts to limit the impact of meddling, he set out with his 11 companions for Dover, only to learn from Dr. Allen in Reims the news that he had just had fresh letters from Spain. Dr. Sanders was newly gone into Ireland. There may have been fresh letters, but Nicholas Sander had landed in Ireland with a force of Spanish troops operating under a papal banner almost a year earlier, on the 17th of July, 1579, 
before Allen had elicited McCurian's agreement to send two of his personnel to the English mission. He must have said nothing, even when McCurian had insisted that there was to be no political meddling. It's hard to absolve Allen from the sin of constructive omission, if not downright deception. Even in Parsons' own account of the reception of this unwelcome news, Campion immediately went to see Alan, the man who addressed him as my father, brother, son, to ask him in a tone of scarcely suppressed indignation what on earth he could do in England that would justify taking him from a fruitful ministry in Prague. This difficulty being passed over, says Parsons, Father Campion went to the president, Mr. Dr. Allen, and said, Well, sir, here now I am. You have desired my going to England, and I am come a long journey as you see from Prague to Rome, from Rome to here. And do you think my labours in England make countervail all this travail, as also my absence from Bohemia, where though I did not much, yet I was not idle nor unemployed, and that also against heretics. Sanders' invasion, this difficulty even Parsons acknowledges, will be laid against us. This is all familiar territory and probably more familiar to some than others. But I want to explore today what Campion's reaction tells us about the other participants in the English mission who submitted themselves without protest. Campion's frustration with the English mission as embodied in the English Dewey College in Douai shows him to be unusually shrewd in his assessment of the political realities in a way that one could not necessarily demand of every seminary priest being sent to England, and completely realistic in his religious obedience. He ends by saying, As for me, said Father Campion, all is well, and I hope I am and shall ever be ever indifferent for all nations and functions wherein soever my superiors under God shall employ me. I have made a free oblation of myself to his divine majesty for life and death, and I trust that he will give me grace and force to perform. And this is all I desire. This second passage is sometimes quoted without reference to the context and without the protest that precedes it, thereby reinforcing the idea of the archetypal martyr as homo sanctus, sed non politicus. The reaction to this sanitized portrait has been equally extreme, with John Bossy complaining of Campion's angelism, Michael Carapiello accusing Catholic historians of naivety and ignoring the political intent of the mission, with the Shakespeare scholar Stephen Greenblatt and the popular historian Jesse Childs implying that Campion was a fanatic. Peter Lake and Michael Questier were surely correct in their balanced assessment that the mission was entirely structured by certain political and polemical contexts. But Michael's recent study shows how this question is far from being merely an academic dispute among early modern historians. Rather, it affects the innermost recesses of the consciousness of the Catholic community in England. Of course, what first strikes one in Michael's account of the long canonization process 
is the fitful and dilatory nature of this process. Begun in 1626 by Bishop Richard Smith, we heard this morning, delayed in 1643 by the capture of the papers, continued by Bishop Chaloner, but not reaching even halfway by 1886, when a number of martyrs, including Kant, were as I read Michael's account for the third time, what struck me as really odd is that names were excluded from the list of martyrs, either initially by Bishop Chaloner, who began anyway with a start date of 1577, or in the final list, if they were in any way tainted by political involvement. The question I asked so why are we so particular about politics in the case of the English martyrs? Do we try to apply this principle in San Salvador, communist Poland, or post-colonial Algeria? Oscar Romero, Blessed Jerzy Popijulsko, and Christian de Chargé have all shown how a complex political situation does nothing to detract from the eschatological witness of their martyrdom including forgiveness of their enemies and powerful evidence of the power of grace. Whether he was killed by the Algerian army or by the Mujahideen who kidnapped him and six other members of the community at Tiberi, the fact is that de Cherche risked imminent death in order to bear witness to the love of the Algerians who looked to the monks for physical, moral and spiritual support. Catholic friends of mine in France are increasingly critical of the ironic approach of Christian de Chargé to Muslims, looking back to the days of Charles de Foucault, who wanted to convert them with nostalgia. But nothing diminishes the beauty of the testament de Chargé wrote between the 1st of December 1993 and the 1st of January 1994. I think he puts the start date because it's the date of, the 1st of December is the date of the assassination of Charles de Foucault. Uh, but of course it also happens in Cambians. Two years before he was kidnapped and killed, he ends this document by thanking everyone, friends, family, and finally his future murderer. You also, the friend of my last minute, who will not have known what it is you were doing, to you also I say thank you and envisage this Adieu, as addressed to you, and that it should please God our Father, the Father of us both, that it be granted to us to find ourselves two good and happy thieves in paradise. Laurent heureux. Archbishop Oscar Romero was originally critical of liberation theology, but the horrors of the oppressive regime and the wretched lives of the poor changed his mind and he challenged the government while also denouncing the growing violence on the left. He was actually, as I'm sure you all know, saying mass when on the 24th of March 1980 he was shot with a single bullet by a professional gunman just after he had preached a sermon in which he had talked of the need for the grain of wheat to die lest it remain a solitary grain. In Warsaw, Father Jerzy Popijusko became involved in Solidarność, the workers' struggle, and carried on preaching the gospel and denouncing the evils of communism to crowds so large that speakers were installed outside the church 
and the seventh of a broadcast on Radio Free Europe. When the authorities failed to silence this young priest by arrest and interrogation, they staged a false accident intended to kill him on the 13th of October 1984, and finally, when that didn't work, bludgeoned him to death six days later on the 19th, dumped his body tied to a stone in a reservoir of the River Vista. The discovery of his body on the 30th of October elicited such an outpouring of grief that it turned the funeral into a mass political protest with over 250,000 people. He was beatified on the 6th of June, 2010. All three men were deeply involved in the politics of the countries they loved. So why do we accept these martyrs without question? but have reservations about English martyrs and politics. Campion's death, demanded by the political exigencies of the Queen and Privy Council, was meant to manifest the secular state's determination to be tough on Catholics. Campion turned this stunt, as you know, upside down. Spectaculum, facti sumus deo angelis et arminibus, saying these are the words of St. Paul, English, thus, we are made a spectacle or a sight unto God and his angels and unto men. Verify this day in me, who am here a spectacle unto my Lord God, a spectacle unto his angels and unto you men. Camden was fully aware of the confusion out of which the mission was born, and is able to say that he has been made a spectacle not just to God and his angels, but also to men. His first words on the scaffolders, Susanna Montrem and Dunham of Show, locate his martyrdom within a long tradition of Christian discourse. They also show him to be fully aware of the political theatre of this spectacle and of the paschal theology of martyrdom, when he says that this is verified this day an echo of the gradual antiphon for Easter, Hike Diaz. This is the day the Lord has made. His last words are to ask those in the household of the faith to say with him the symbol of Australia, beginning with credo, it ends in vita eterna, a perfect witness to faith and the victory of grace over time. What was intended to show the terrifying power of the state had instead manifested the triumph of grace. Karl Rahner in a wonderful essay attached uh, to his book Towards the Theology of Death, simply called The Martial of Martin, writes uh, that martyr, the martyr is the supreme witness to Christian death, that is, death accepted in faith. So the martyr accepts his death, sees his life as given to God in faith, and forgives those who are responsible, as to shelter it. It's axiomatic, says Rana, that he could have avoided his death. Above all, he conforms in the manner of his death to the supreme sacrifice of Christ and draws the power to act beyond his own capacity from the grace of God. The martyr manifests, rather key word, the operation of that grace in a sacramental way. His martyrdom is so manifestly the work of grace that it bears witness to the eschatological victory of grace which conquers the world now and will triumph at the end of time. 
had been very moved by the revisions Evelyn Waugh made to his Edmund Campion, which was first published in September 1935, revised for an American edition in 1946, <coughs> Penguin in 1953, and finally again for a superb third edition in 1961. The first edition appeared just after the canonization of Thomas More and John Fisher on the 19th of May, 1935, and the third appeared in 1961, immediately after the canonization process of the other martyrs, which had been stalled during the war, had finally restarted, when Margaret, Orr's favorite daughter, was helping Father Philip Kerman, the new vice postulator at Farm Street. Here's one nice picture of him this morning. War first wrote Edmund Campion under the influence of three Jesuits. If Father Martin Darcy famously prompted him to write the book, it was Leo Hicks who passed to War his own notes and a massive collection of index cards on Campion and other Jesuit martyrs that John Hungerford Pollen had left behind after his death in 1925, and the collection still extant at Farm Street. The polemical Elizabethan history of that book owes as much to war's sources, men determined to set the record straight as to his own belligerent character. It was the success of Bryce had revisited, especially in the States, that encouraged War to press for a second edition of Edmund Campion. For the American edition of 1946, War insisted on cutting much of the Elizabethan apparatus, the notes of which he had long been greatly ashamed, as he wrote later to ASP Glover, the Penguin editor, and the very slipshod bibliography, both of which give a rather specious suggestion scholarship. Instead of the scrappy author's note, War substituted the eloquent and moving preface. The combined effect of these three changes is to shift the reader's focus from the ferociously partisan Elizabethan history to what War called in the new preface, the simple but true, perfectly true story of heroism and holiness. War now sees Campion as the victim, not of a moribund Elizabethan regime and servile Anglican church, an anachronistic term he'd used throughout, but of the second state. War was here influenced by Graham Greene, who visited Mexico in 1938, and whose subsequent book, The Lawless Roads, had argued that the totalitarian state always behaves the same way in the time of Elizabeth in England, just as much as in Mexico. The following year, War himself visited Mexico and was shocked by the anarchy of the regime and the long history of violent oppression of Catholicism that stretched back to the 1920s. War, in the new preface to Campion, no longer criticizes what he calls Simpson's cisalpine sympathies, but instead notes that Simpson, whose magnificent biography of Campion emerged in 1867, lived during a brief truce in an unending war, and he now sees Campion's martyrdom as echoed by Father Pro in Mexico. In 1926, the Jesuit Blessed Miguel Pro had been sent to his native Mexico to help regain his health. 23 days 
before a new law closed all churches and banned all religious worship. Like Campion, therefore, he carried out his priestly ministry in secular dress, disguised in dark lounge suit and bright cardigan, for 16 months before being arrested. After a manifestly unjust trial, he was sentenced to death by a firing squad. President Plutarco Callias invited the press to photograph the event. The cheerful Jesuit, like Campion, transformed his execution into a religious enactment of the essence of Christian martyrdom. He refused a blindfold, insisted on first kneeling to pray, and died standing with his arms outstretched, shouting, Viva Christa Rei, so conforming himself to Christ, even unto death. Green and war, these two hard-bitten writers, you might say, both saw prose grace-filled joyful acceptance of death as a defining feature of Christian martyrdom. War was also profoundly shaken by his wartime experience in Croatia and his failure to enlist the support of the British government for the present sufferings and future fears of Catholics at the hands of the communist regime. Tito, like Stalin, was now a friend. So he writes in the new preface, a wonderful piece of prose. The martyrdom of Father Pro in Mexico reenacted Campion's in faithful detail. We are near Campion than when I wrote of him. We have seen the church drawn underground in country after country, in fragments and in whispers. We get news of other saints in the prison camps of Eastern and Southeastern Europe, of cruelty and degradation more savage than anything in Tudor England, of the same pure light shining in darkness, uncomprehended. The hunted, trapped, murdered priest is our contemporary, and Campion's voice sounds to us across the centuries as though he were walking at our elbow. It was Darcy who advised Father Philip Caramon to translate the autobiography of the Elizabethan Jesuit John Gerard. And Darcy, who first suggested war and then Green when war turned the job down for the introduction, Green himself relied heavily on War's portrait of Campion. War's preface, therefore, and Green's introduction mark the moment in English literary history where two of England's finest novelists, each recruited by Darcy, each transformed by Mexico's metaphysical battle, now turned the full force of their scorn on the hypocrisies and cruelties of the totalitarian state. The development of war's thought from the first edition in 1935 to the third in 1961 marks a change from the kind of popular assumption exposed by Michael Christie's book that the Elizabethan martyrs were put to death as part of a religious war by the Anglican Church to a more mature assessment that it was the secular state worried about the ancient marriage and public anxieties about a return to Spanish Catholicism that put to death so many traitors, inverted commas. I recently visited the Greek Catholic Cathedral of Preshov in Slovakia and was moved by the embalmed body of Bishop Pavel Peter Goidich, who, after saving many Jews from the Nazis, refused to leave when the communists took over and suffered ten shocking years of torture and abuse before dying in prison 
because he refused to renounce his allegiance to Rome and become patriarch of the Orthodox Church in Czechoslovakia, church then under government control. His words almost summarize all that I've been saying. I'm certain, he says, that at the end, truth will triumph over lies and love will overcome hatred. I do not hate my enemies. I would like to bring them closer to Christ, of course not by force or deceit, but by love and truth. In Slovakia and in Poland, one is surrounded by a host of witnesses who are honored as national heroes. In England, we seem as embarrassed by our martyrs as by our politics. When Ronnie Knox preached on the English martyrs using chapters 11 and 12 of Hebrews, he asked his audience to imagine such a cloud of witnesses while we run our race to the end in a massive stadium with the saints as spectators cheering us on, not, he says, politely clapping, but standing on the seats as he did as a boy. Our stadium today has been emptied quietly of the great cloud of witnesses who have been polite of us to take a back seat because we cannot disentangle the politics and religion. Let us take two striking cases. Blessed Thomas Plumtree died on the 4th of January, 1570, at Durham. He was a key figure in the rebellion of the Northern Earls, saying mass in Durham Cathedral after the cathedral <coughs> had been seized. The second is John Felton, who nailed the papal bull, Rainians in Excelsis, to the door of the bishop's palace in Paul's churchyard on the 25th of May, 1570, and was executed on the 8th of August, a day after Campion renewed his travelling fellowship. We can hardly blame Felton for his actions when, as Eamon Duffy argues, Allen, the man in charge of the English mission, repeatedly defended the validity of the bull in the published writings which his priests helped circulate in England, and he actively sought the armed implementation of the bull and the deposition of Elizabeth in 1572, 1576, 1583, 1586, 1588. In 1583, he even planned to take up the Sea of Durham if what Emma calls his half baked plan for invasion had succeeded. So, why does Blessed Thomas Plumtree, on the walls of the English College, and therefore in the 1886 beatification, not get into Chalada? to be remembered only in Durham? And why has John Felton been consigned to the outer circle of Catholic memory, less Pritomissus or Delatus than Delitus? Michael Questier's account of the simplifications of English Catholic history opened my eyes to the way these issues go beyond the confines of scholarly debate. If Camion thought that Henry VIII had completely confused the human and divine and destroyed root and branch religion in the Commonwealth of Britain, as he uh, said in response to a, a graffiti he'd seen in the uh, Lodge of Christchurch. And Allen was right to consider that the English Reformation was a sacrilegious invasion of the spiritual sphere by the secular power. We cannot blame all those who sought to reverse this Henrician model by political means. If blame is required, it would be better to blame Dr. Allen than to deny his priests a martyr's crown 
because they were caught up in the confusion, which was at least in part of his making. The whole Catholic community needs to acknowledge the activist political strand, almost inevitable in the Catholic response to the Elizabethan regime. Acknowledge the mistakes made by Dr. Allen, the Cardinal of Como, and Pius V, and then really honor those who died for their faith. Elizabeth, Camden tells us, did not blame the wretched little priests, Miseris Sacerdotibus, but their superiors. We could do worse. For much of our history, we were, in the words of Pope Urban VIII, weeping with tears of blood for the papal bull of 1570. Equally, the secular state's reaction to the threat of Catholic subversion and foreign invasions was a shocking resort to barbaric and oppressive methods which its famous jurists, like Sir John Fortescue, much earlier one than Michael was mentioning this morning, had always condemned as contrary to English common law. Of course, the established church played an instrumental role in the suppression. It may be easy to separate Campion and Robert Subtle from active resistance, but there were many like Plumtree and Felton who believed that the true faith could best be restored to their beloved country only by a change of sovereign, but who still freely gave their lives for their faith and died forgiving their enemies. Campion, who had an enviable clarity on the religious and political model created by Henry VIII's imposition of secular power on the church, may have been helped by his knowledge of Aristotle. In politics, 1453b, Aristotle starts from the premise that man alone of the animals possesses speech or reason, logon, and is therefore by nature a political animal, designed to live in a group, a household, or the most important group, a polis, where there is law and justice. For, he says, as man is the best of animals when perfected, so he is the worst of all when separated from law and justice. While Campion had argued for the supremacy of Peter in the early church, there's nothing to suggest in his writings that the church should depose a sovereign. At his trial and in the tower, he vehemently asserted the queen's authority sovereignty, both facto and jure. He distinguished between the spiritual power of the papacy, the testas ordinata, and its interventions in civil affairs, the testas inordinata where he insisted that papacy must follow the order of law. Most tellingly of all, in Westminster Hall, in front of the Privy Council and senior judges, he distanced himself from Dr. Allen. Dr. Allen, he said, for his learning and good religion I reverence, but neither was I his subject or inferior, nor he the man at whose commandment I rested. The power of the state is necessary for man because it guarantees the order of law. Aristotle's law and justice give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, as Campion himself quoted <clears throat> in his trial. Campion did all he could to avoid being caught up in the politico-religious muddle that was Henry VIII's legacy. But the 300 or so other martyrs could not be expected to have such a clear vision and should not be consigned to the clutter basket of the English Catholic Church, which needs its martyrs more than ever in its history, if, with its Christian brethren, 
is to preserve Christianity at all in a secularized country. Intellectual laziness has prevented us making the clear distinctions Campion made between the religious and political. Cutting through this fog now is less an academic obligation than a requirement for the spiritual health of the whole of the Catholic community. In 2016, Pope Francis at a meeting with the Patriarch of the Ethiopian Orthodox said, the ecumenism of the martyrs is a summons to us here and now to advance on the path to ever greater unity. Just as in the early church, the shedding of the blood of martyrs became the seed of the new Christians, so today the blood of the many martyrs of all the churches has become the seed of Christian unity. In 1998, the Queen unveiled the statues of Maximilian Kolb and Oscar Romero on the front of Westminster Abbey. As we saw with Cardinal Arnaud Bertrand in a French supermarket, the martyr is a witness that still resonates in the secular world of the power of grace and the triumph of love. Thank you.